Alrighty, hello everybody and welcome to Unqualified Analysis, the show with zero credentials that just keeps firing off opinions. I'm your host, Caleb Verzak, and it's a jam-packed episode for you sexy, sultry sons of bitches. On the docket for today, we've got Joel Embiid getting smacked in the face when they're up 30 in the fourth quarter, CP3 being chef's kiss, perfecto, and one wild opening draft night in Vegas. But first... Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, moving is the fucking worst. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get out of the uh, the scripted portion here. I straight up just put the headline "Moving is the worst" and just figured my brain would fill in the gaps here for all of you. Now, I mean, as you may have gathered from some of my previous rhetoric and previous episodes, and maybe the way I preface this, hey, I'm in a new spot now, ladies and gentlemen. I am, uh, you know, moved back in with the parents. I think I think everyone loves to do that. I mean. Who who doesn't love to move back when they're with their mother and father when they're 26? But uh, I digress on that front. Either way, that that's besides the point. The main thing here is my life has been hell for the past like week or so. Just trying to figure everything out, get from point A to point B, move my stuff. I've been like slowly moving everything over the past three weeks, and still somehow moving day was was still hell because I mean. I did get some work moving my parents because, by the way, they're moving back in the area at the same time as I'm moving into their house, so it's just all hell breaking loose at once here, but, like, I had to start the day by moving their stuff off of off of the truck. I was, I was paid for it because it was a work day. I mean, say what you will, I mean, I, I needed the money, all right, so, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take the payment for that one. And plus, I was dead by the end of it, so I think it was worth it. Uh, made some good money off of that. But then, that night, I had to move all of my stuff that was remaining back at my apartment um, over to the house as well. So, in addition to all the heavy shit I had to carry in the morning, I uh, basically got an hour and a half break. I uh, got to sit down for like two seconds, um, walk my dog, and then my dad was there to carry out all the other heavy shit I had to take over to uh over over to the house again. So, yeah, that that day was oh yeah, and I couldn't even like this this is the this is the kicker here. This one was the kick in the balls. Um I thought I was going to be able to get everything in my apartment in one fell swoop, just pack it all in the car and go. What ended up happening is I packed everything except for the essentials that I needed in the morning and then made my way back to what should have been my final destination at, oh, like, like 10 at night. And then, you know, I had to basically unload all that shit, help my, help my dad get the, the furniture that I moved out of his truck, and then drive all the way back across town to my, uh, my old apartment, load the, the car back up again, and then basically drive back from there running on nothing but caffeine and a hard cock, um, getting back to the final destination at around midnight, falling asleep at around one, then getting up the next morning to, uh, go work a full day. It's been, it's been quite a week, ladies and gentlemen. That's just <laughs> the only way I can put it. Uh, anyone who has moved before knows it sucks. And this is probably like the smoothest move I've ever done, bar none. And it was still absolutely stressful and tiring. So if you can, ladies and gentlemen, just stay in one spot as long as possible, you know? I'm going to be doing this again in, like, 
seven months or so. I know it's going to suck, but like, <laughs> if you can, find a way to stay in one spot for a while. Uh, with that, I think I rambled on enough about my personal life here. Let's get into the NBA playoff update here. Wrapping up the first round, first and foremost, we have got starting in the Eastern Conference with the uh, Heat versus Hawks. Not sure if this series was done whenever I um, did last week's episode, but, you know, as, as I predicted, the Heat closed out the series in, in five games. Uh, made a valiant last stand, but were ultimately eliminated with honor in, in five games, did the Hawks. Uh, Trey Young attempted more shots than he had total points in the uh, decisive game five, capping off a series that... Really highlighted the holes in his game. I mean, he really can't defend anyone on the opposing team. He's an absolute liability in that uh, that factor because he's he's so small. He's just, I mean, not really small. He's really just like a normal-sized person, which in the NBA means you are minuscule. But because of that, you can't really guard anyone with that, no matter, no matter how quick you are. If you don't have the size, it's just not going to work. And then in addition to that, He's a black hole when he gets the ball in his hands. He's either trying to thread the needle for a spectacular assist, which, to be fair, he does make a lot of those, and he's made a made quite a highlight reel off of those. But it also ends up being a turnover a lot of times, too. Or he's jacking up a shot that objectively stinks. I mean, it's like a 35-foot jump shot that, yes, he makes them if, you know, he's, he's left open for an extended period of time for it, but, like... So many times it's just like clanging off the back iron and he's putting up 30 shots and scoring 26. And I asked this question because I genuinely think there's a comparison to be made here. What are the real differences between Isaiah Thomas, the Celtics one, at his peak under Brad Stevens in Boston and Trey Young in present day? You think about it, they're both volume scorers that have to work around their their size deficiencies to get uh, offense, right? They both... uh absolute liabilities on the defensive end of the court. Stevens actually had to specifically craft the defense to hide Thomas's deficiencies on that end, and they still ended up being a two-seed. That's how good of a, a tactician Brad Stevens was. Um, I'll give Trey Young the edge in ball handling and passing, but the overall effect on the team seems to be the same for both of these guys. They're both dudes... A lot of guys and dudes in this conversation here that you need to build around to get be the best out of them, but neither Isaiah Thomas or Trey Young are players you're going to win a championship with if you do that at the, at the end of the day. I mean, it's you, you've seen it done with Steph Curry, but he was objectively the greatest shooter of all time, and he had probably a top five, top ten shooter next to him in Klay Thompson. Certainly, certainly has an argument to be made as possibly the greatest spot-up shooter of all time, Clay Thompson. You could you can just look at his, I what was it, like 38-point quarter or something like that. Maybe I'm like getting out of my out of my skis here. Definitely am. As per usual, I'm definitely open to eating crow and admitting I'm wrong, but Trey Young is going to have markedly gonna, gonna have to be markedly better on defense before I capitulate like that and uh Anyone who knows your boy knows I am not one to capitulate easily, so better start working on that defensive stance, Trey Young. Now, moving down the list, we have got the two-seed Celtics versus the seven-seed Nets. Uh, talked about this last week because the, ch the series just ended so damn quick. I figured it might have still been going over the weekend, but boy, was I wrong to start the series. Um, all I'm really going to say on this, just, you know, because... 
not going to beat a dead horse here. Uh, Celtics equal team and Nets equal collection of talent. That's pretty much all you need to know. Moving down the list, we have got the three seed Bucks versus the six seed Bulls. And uh, much like the uh, game five in the Heat Hawks series, this one went about exactly how I thought with the uh, Bucks winning by 16 to close out a turbulent season for the Bulls here. Um, at one point, the Bulls looked like the best team in the East, but injuries and inconsistent play ended up derailing the uh, the promise of the team here. I'd say the Bulls are still a star away from truly competing in the East, but they deserve props for the strides they made this season. Uh, after consistently fighting for the eight seed, uh, missing the playoffs for years, they're finally starting to look like an attractive landing spot for a star player who wants to forge his own legacy, right? Like, Chicago's a big city. I mean, obviously, I've got my qualms with it. As you know, if you follow the product, you know your boy is a Vikings fan. So I got a, got a bit of a grudge against the old uh, Chicago area. But I can admit, the city is fucking dope. One of the greatest summer cities out there. I mean, absolutely perfect weather when you get into those summer months. Just awesome. Can't recommend it enough. And it's also a city that, you know... If you're into the nightlife, as many NBA players are, it's a fairly attractive destination for you. And in addition to that city there, because, I mean, if it was just about the city, New York would get every free agent every year. The team around that city, well, kind of a weird way to put that, but the team itself is actually got a really good young core. I mean, you talk about Levine continuing to press an, uh, continuing to progress as an elite scorer, uh, not going to say what I usually say there because I say it too often, but easy for me to say. Uh, Got to re-sign him this offseason, though. Uh, DeRozan creating shots and playing defense with the best of them. Uh, Patrick Williams being an intriguing young talent at stretch four. I mean, they just drafted him, I believe, top five just a couple of years ago. And the guy that just keeps putting up offensive production and getting absolutely no love because he's addicted to playing for underdogs Nikola Vucevic, uh, you add a guy in like Bradley Beal to this team, you've got a legit contender to come out of the Eastern Conference as soon as next season, in my opinion. Um, you think about it, you got DeRozan, not the greatest shooter in the world, but he can create all sorts of mid-range and get to the rim as much as you want. He's an excellent second option on a championship team. You, you slot in a guy like Bradley Beal who can bring in the shooting um, more of the pure, pure scoring aspect of it to kind of complement as well what Levine does. Again, got to re-sign him. Uh, this is a team I can see going really, really far next year. They could be a two seed, could be a one seed, or, you know, they could get no nobody and still end up with like an eight seed or something. You never know. Either way, I'm excited to see him next year. Uh, moving down the list, we have got the 76ers versus the Raptors, four, yeah, the 4-5 seed there. God, really stumbling over my words as per usual today. Uh, Joel Embiid, already dealing with uh, a torn ligament in his thumb, got smacked right across the face late in Game 6 with basically the game in hand. Not really sure why he's out there. More of a question for Doc Rivers, not necessarily for me. Uh, he's now out indefinitely, though, with a broken eye socket, orbital bone for you uh, medically inclined motherfuckers out there, and uh, concussion-like symptoms. Uh, not really sure how long he's going to be out. I guess they assume the first two games at least here. Uh, in spite of this, however, like I said, I mean, they won by 35, 132 to 97. The Sixers closed them out emphatically. 
Um, not a great way to end it for the Raptors. Uh, is not necessarily quite how I expected it or they wanted it to end this year. But all in all, another solid season for the Raptors, given what they have on the roster right now. They have Rookie of the Year, not not just candidate, Rookie of the Year winner Scotty Barnes this year. Uh, OG Ananobi continues to develop as a pure scorer. Seems poised for a breakout season next year. He's had a couple very good scoring years in a row, but I feel like he's really, really poised to make that next step. I know, you know, getting kind of nerdy with it here, but when my, my throwing coach used to say, when you're hitting clusters, it means you're ready to jump up and make a PR. I mean, in, in the context of uh, of shot put. In, in other words, like if you're hitting the same distance over and over in the same area, it means you're probably ready for a big jump. That's kind of what I see OG Ananobi doing here over the last couple of years. He's steadily improved. I think last year he scored uh, like 18 a game, I want to say. This year he was up around 20. I could see him definitely having a jump next year where he gets up to maybe like 25, really steps into the the lead scoring role. Uh, Pascal Siakam has developed into a legit year-in, year-out all-star type of player. Got that unique size and length. In addition to the offensive game that he's slowly developed over time, I mean, the Raptors are just the best at bringing in these guys that you don't really hear about coming in, but just turn into absolute studs. It's a team that's not really that far off from competing again in the East. Either they'll pull off a miracle and land one of the big-name free agents, which, especially in the time of COVID here, let me tell you, that's going to be a Herculean task. It was already a crazy difficult task to accomplish uh, before COVID, but now you got all the, the border restrictions happening, um, the, all the different regulations, specifically as it pertains to uh, vaccinated players. I mean, it's it's going to be tough. In addition to the customs that you already had to go through, it's going to be tough to attract a free agent there. But, I mean, I don't put it past Masai Ujiri to, to bring in a guy. I mean, he is the best GM in the NBA, but it's either going to be that or the man I just mentioned, Ujiri, is going to do what he always does and consistently draft productive players with non-lottery picks. I mean, Pascal Siakam was not a lottery pick. I don't believe OG Ananobi was a lottery pick. I don't think Scotty Barnes was a lottery pick. Um, could be wrong on one or all of those. Didn't really look it up. I'm unqualified. That's part of the part of the fucking podcast. Either way, Raptors are a team that I will be very intrigued to watch this offseason uh, and moving into next regular season. Now, the Sixers move on to face the one-seed Heat, which, hey, I was just talking about those guys not too long ago. Um, without their superstar center for an inter- indeterminate amount of time, more on that matchup in just a bit. But now, we'll be moving on to the Western Conference with the one-seed Suns versus the eight-seed Pelicans. Uh, Suns ended up winning that series in six games after they were... Uh, Tied 2-2 whenever I recorded um, last week. Uh, won that late game on the night that I recorded, then won another game that weekend. And that's why we don't doubt CP3. What a fucking performance to close out the series. Paul went 14 for 14. 33 points. 8 assists. That sets a, an NBA record for most shots made without a miss in a playoff game. I mean, 
gotta give props where it's due. CP3 wasn't the only clutch performer in this Game 5, Game 6. Uh, Michael Bridges actually carried the heavyweights on, on offense in addition to his role as a stellar defender in Game 5. He had he was actually 12 for 17, 4 for 4 from 3, 4 blocks as well though. Just dominated in all phases. Basically won him Game 5. I think uh, CP3 ended up having double-digit assists in that game. But Michael Bridges, no question carried the water in that game on offense as the number one scoring option. And the ever-efficient DeAndre Ayton, I mean, is there any other way to describe him other than ultra-efficient at this point in his career? Uh, with his shooting selection, he's a combined 18 for 25 in the last two games, in games five and six. Uh, that's 13, 18 for 13 in uh, game five, 19 points, nine rebounds, uh, 10 for 12, 22.7 rebounds in the decisive game six. When he's got CP3 on the court to just feed him sweet lob passes, he's quite possibly the most efficient big man in the entire league already in his career. After he was at the early part in his career, maybe looking at going down bus lane. I mean, this is quite a career revival for him, and the Suns have got to be ecstatic that he is playing at this level at this point in his career. Uh, and it is getting back to CP3 here, though, because, you know, had to give the other guys their props first. It's only the first round, and it is a game against the Pelicans. But I feel like it's not an exaggeration to say that Game 6 was a legacy-defining moment for Chris Paul. Um, when the season hung in the balance, when his team needed him most, he delivered in the most clutch way possible. It's a performance that flies in the face of basically... Everything his doubters have say, stated in the past. Oh, he's not clutch. Oh, he shrinks in the biggest moments. You can't say that anymore after watching what Paul just did over the last two postseasons, basically, with the Suns. You think about it. Last year, he shepherded a young, inexperienced, but really talented team um, to the finals before ultimately succumbing to, I mean, really, what can you describe it as other than an all-time performance by Giannis going for 50 points in the, in the decisive game there. Um, this year, he has a perfect shooting game and a closeout game six on the road to ice the series, make it a no-doubter at the end. All he needs now is a championship, and the narrative about his career will be completely rewritten. And honestly, that's what I'm rooting for, because he fucking deserves it with all he's been through in his career. He's been counted out on... Well, I, I would say more than one occasion, but it was really just one occasion um, <laughs> when he got traded from uh, the Rockets to the Thunder. I think a lot of people were thinking maybe he was on his last legs. Maybe maybe he lost a step. Um, could not be farther from the opposite. I think with that old man game, I think he could play easily into his 40s, and he showed that with the Thunder. He's now shown that emphatically again with the Suns. Uh, I'd be remiss, though, if I didn't take a moment to give the Pelicans their flowers, though. Ingram, McCollum, and the solid young core of role players, with Zion being added back in there in the fold next season, that's a core that could really take the West by storm next year. If Zion comes back looking like the Zion of, I guess, last year at this point, time is just a flat circle in this pandemic, man. Let me tell you what. If he comes back looking like that, though, like the last time he was on the court and we saw him, this Pelicans team is going to be an absolute problem next year. And I cannot wait 
to see that when it happens. But we're going to have to wait because right now we've got some real competitive basketball going on. And let me tell you, on to my favorite series of the week. Well, first round, I guess. Kind of an awkward way to end that. But we're moving on to the Grizzlies versus T-Wolves where the Grizzlies ended up winning it 4-2. And it was a fitting way to end a rowdy series between two young, promising squads. Game 5 was an absolute banger that ended with Ant-Man and John Moran exchanging brilliant last-second shots. Let me take you through the final sequence here. Well, you know, also the T-Wolves led by 13 at one point midway through the third. But uh, in the final seconds of the game, they found themselves down by 3 after coughing up that lead in the fourth quarter. A theme we saw a lot for the T-Wolves this series, and we will talk about that more in just a second. Uh, On the T-Wolves' final possession, Anthony Edwards, the Ant-Man, made an ice-cold three-pointer, falling away with a hand in his face in the corner, 23 feet away from the basket, to tie the game at 109-109 with 3.7 seconds remaining in the game, presumably in my mind to send the game to OT, and this is why we fucking love Ant-Man, because he's ice cold. He don't give a fuck when it matters most. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns, for all the skill he has, I just don't think he has what it takes mentally to be that dog when you need him to in the biggest moments and just go in there and ball out and dominate everyone. Anyways, getting off track here. However, on the ensuing possession, 3.7 seconds left, Ja Morant put that notion out of my mind of them going to overtime by making an acrobatic finish at the rim. As time expired, zeros on the clock to give the Grizzlies the win and a commanding 3-2 series lead, which I think if you've watched any NBA playoff broadcast before, you know the statistics, it's like 79% of the time the team that takes a 3-2 series lead ends up winning that series. So basically the kiss of death at that point. Uh, game 6 saw the T-Wolves again, again attaining a 13-point lead. It was actually 12 with a minute left in the third quarter, and yet they coughed it up again uh, in the fourth quarter again. Uh, something that... Really, they have to get rectified. This time, the T-Wolves went relatively quietly, though, as the Grizzlies pulled away in the final minutes to game, bah, final minutes of the game to win the series 4-2 in six games. That's Maspy. Uh, the Grizzlies now face the Warriors in the second round in what's bound to be a fun offensive series. More on that in a bit. Put that to the side for now. Let's do a little post-mortem on the T-Wolves, though, because... For them, they showed a lot of fight in this postseason, fighting their way out of the play-in tournament, then giving the two-seed Grizzlies all they could handle in a six-game series. I think you can definitely consider this season to be a success, especially considering where they started from. You got Anthony Edwards separating himself as the number one option on offense and really looks poised to have a breakout all-star caliber season next year. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns kind of struggled initially, molding into that uh, that second fiddle role with uh, Ant-Man. Uh, I know I've given him a lot of grief about wilting in big moments. I mean, I literally just did it not two, three minutes ago there. Um, he's really settled into that second fiddle role behind Ant-Man, like I was saying, on offense in this series versus Memphis. And it's a role that I think Towns is much better suited for than playing the lead man. Like I said, I mean... 
I, I give him all the shit about his mental makeup, but that being said, if you put him in the two slot and Anthony Edwards steps up and becomes the star that I think he will, I mean, you got something cooking there. You take some pressure off of Carl Anthony Towns, just let him just kind of do Carl Anthony Towns things and not have it really affect the final seconds of the game like it would if he was the number one option. Um, we got something really cooking here. The one main issue, though, the big bugaboo I got looking at this uh, this team right now, uh, I'm going to quote Bomani Jones here. Uh, he put it very eloquently when he said, Patrick Beverly can be an adult in the room, but if he's the adult in the room, uh, that can be a problem or something along those lines. He said it in a, in a podcast, so I don't really have the exact wording readily available to me to just kind of copy and paste in here. I digress. That manifested, though, in blown leads throughout the Memphis series when T-Wolves needed their most discipline, needed to be at their most discipline. Jesus Christ, stumbling all over myself. Uh, they were unfocused, lackadaisical, uh, and ultimately, they lost the lead that they worked so hard to build time and time again. I mean, I just went over two of those. It happened so many times. I can remember, I think it was either game three or game four, they had like two different 25-point leads that they ended up coughing up and losing to the Grizzlies. I, I mean, it feels like if they would have just been disciplined, they could have pulled off a real shocker here and then had the privilege of getting dusted by the Suns in the next round. But they missed a whole lot of opportunities here. Um They need to pick up one or two wise, well-traveled vets like a P.J. Tucker or Andre Iguodala, just a stabilizing presence in the locker room, in, in, if nothing else. I mean, as well as, you know, what they bring on the court, on the practice court as well. Uh, I love what Pat Bev brings to the game. You need a, an absolute dog like that uh, who's not afraid to get the dirty work done when it's needed. But that's also not the type of guy you count on to be the team's emotional rudder, you know. He's a guy that runs hot. He's got a whole lot of swings. I mean, sometimes he is he is on his game. Everything's going great. But if things are going badly, um, that's a guy that has a tendency to snap. And, you know, you don't want a guy that's got a tendency to snap necessarily be the guy that's going to dictate what the emotions of the team are like. Now, um, guys like Iguodala, Tucker, uh, Markeith Morris is going to be an unrestricted free agent. Jalen Brunson, if you can get him, is going to be a restricted free agent. Um, adding those types of guys to the team is going to inject some toughness and basketball IQ that I think can take the T-Wolves to the next level at the end of the day because they're really not that far off. The, the growth that they showed in the playoffs, I mean, they really did give the Memphis Grizzlies all they could handle in that first-round series. And really, if they just add a little bit of maturity to the team, a little bit more age, someone to kind of shepherd them into the, the promised land, not necessarily as as hands-on as Chris Paul, but, you know, someone that can just kind of show them the ways of what playoff basketball really looks like. I think this is a team that's got a core that can really win a championship, especially if they somehow pull off getting Jalen Brunson. That being said, uh, that's pretty much all I've got for that series. We've got to move on here down to the 3-6 matchup in the West, uh, the Warriors versus the Nuggets. Uh, yeah, not not much to say about this series that wasn't already said at this point. The Warriors just overpower the Nuggets. Um, if Murray and Porter were out there playing, it may have been a different story. 
But as it was, Nuggets were just Nikola Jokic and a bunch of souped-up guys that you're going to find at your local LA Fitness. Uh, on paper, got to be excited looking at the uh, Nuggets' future moving forward, but persistent injuries, specifically Porter's back, which, which kept him from being a lottery pick uh, out of college initially, uh, I just got a bad feeling about this team's postseason success going forward, man. I just can't shake it. Like, this feels like a core that's just so good, but so fragile. And it's probably not due to anything that they did. It, it's not something that they can control. But the bottom line is you can't win when you're built around severely, severely injury-prone players, which that Michael Porter Jr.'s back Already having a back injury at the age that he's at, that's that's the biggest red flag of them all, in my opinion. Um, hopefully I'm wrong and Murray and Porter can come back, have long, productive, healthy careers, because I really do love watching Jokic specifically succeed, but I just get all the cursed vibes from this team, and I just... I just hope they bring someone in that's that's a durable player that they can put next to Jokic and say, let's ride next season. But yeah, that, that's really all I got to say on that series. Alrighty, moving on to the final series of the first round here. We have got the four seed Mavs versus the five seed Jazz in the least watched series in the first round. That That's probably not fair, but I mean, for me, I'm not sure I actually caught a single game live. Like I told y'all last week, I... I hammer the shit out of the Rudy Gobert rebound props, which, by the way, you followed me on that this weekend. I am so sorry. That's not been working out great recently, huh? Um, but from what I gathered, when Luka came back uh, to the lineup in Game 4, the series completely changed. Um, game 4, he scored 30, and the Mavs lost by 1. Uh, game 5 scored 33, and they completely destroyed the Jazz. Then in the decisive Game 6, he scored 24 in a low-scoring affair that the Mavs ultimately won by 2. Big shout-out to Jalen Brunson, though, for just being a smart, disciplined basketball player. I uh, I remember seeing him playing in college. I want to say he was at uh, Villanova. Uh, heard his story uh, thinking, uh, thinking to myself, I'm not sure if he's gonna he's got the frame to play in the NBA, but he certainly got the brain to do it. Uh, not really, didn't really mean to rhyme there, uh, but regist registered trademark. Gonna gonna copyright that for sure. Not really. Uh, getting back to it, Jesus Christ. Uh, Brunson's father was a pro for a long time in Europe and developed a real old man type of game, for lack of a better term, which he passed down to his son when he was old enough to learn. Uh, as a result, he he basically just came into college and just thought about the game at a much higher like businessman-like level than anyone else around him, basically, just just dominated the college game, mostly. Uh, he could dominate a game with his mind more than basically anyone else at that time, in my opinion. And to see Brunson translate that to the pros is something that I honestly didn't expect to see in my wildest expectations of him, but it's a beautiful thing to watch, man. It's something that I really, really enjoy seeing. Uh, as for the Jazz, it feels like the end of the road for uh, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, as that combo goes. Um, it's a one-two option that I just don't think is going to take you to the promised land in the modern NBA. My assumption is 
The Jazz are going to try to move Gobert this offseason. I would imagine the line of suitors is going to be fairly lengthy. The problem is he's on he's on a max contract right now. Got a five-year, $205 million contract. Real fucking albatross there that someone is going to have to be willing to take on. But what you're getting with that is pretty inarguably the best defensive center in the entire NBA. And you think about what he brings on offense as well as a bonus, not an abject liability from the foul line, enough to where you can keep him in there in clutch situations. And he's one of the most effective lob receivers in the league because he's 7-1 with a 7-9 wingspan. Just absolutely swallows up passes in that lane. Um, his contract, like I said, is unwieldy. unwieldy. He's getting $40 million a year, but... The way he changes the game defensively, he'd be an excellent addition for basically any team that just basic that just needs to bolster their defense to make a championship run. I'm looking at a, a few possible candidates: uh, the Knicks, the Hornets, uh, the Kings. Yeah, all these teams are kind of shitty, and maybe they are, but eh, they also have a lot of offensive weapons, but they're held back by poor defense. Gobert would rectify that issue absolutely immediately on day one and after all the intrigue and possible upsets we got chalk in the first round no game sevens here fairly standard first round but let's be honest the second round is where the best matchups happen anyways in the nba so without further ado let's take a look at the matchups because boy do we have some good ones for you Starting it off in the East, we have got the one-seed uh, Heat versus the four-seed 76ers. Um, probably shouldn't have sold the second round that hard and then started off with the Heat Sixers here because, I mean, without without Joel Embiid, this one's not necessarily a great uh, great series. If, if he was on the court, I think many people in the media would actually have uh, the series going in the Sixers' favor just based on the star, star power factor. But with Joel Embiid out for an undetermined amount of time, I see the Heat having a very clear advantage in this series. James Harden is not only doing his usual James Harden playoff things and playing wildly inconsistent, he's also clearly lost a step athletically, which you can get away with when Embiid is there to defer to. But when Harden is asked to be the main focal point of the offense, he doesn't have the horsepower to will his team to victory by himself. And, I mean, I'm not sure he ever did, but he certainly, uh, he he looks like a, a shell of what he used to be now. I'm not sure. He, I mean, I guess, I guess he just, just woke up one morning and got old on us, huh? Meanwhile, you got a Heat team on the other sideline that's both mean and motivated, uh, led by a quintessential NBA insane person, Jimmy Butler, uh, but outside of Butler, even, the roster is just filled with absolute dogs from top to bottom. Let me tell you what. Kyle Lowry has got the mean streak. Uh, Bam Adebayo might be the most unique, dynamic defender in the league. And I've heard in interviews with him. He's got that edge, which basically, I'm, I'm going to break it down for you like this, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't have edge, you don't play for the Heat. That's just plain and simple. Ben Simmons would get eaten alive in Miami. He would get chewed up and spit out in one day. I'm talking one fucking day in, in Heatland. Not not a fucking chance that he would make it down there. You need to be a tough son of a bitch just to get in the door. Um, 
And, oh, by the way, Victor Oladipo is still working his way back into the fold after recently returning from injury. He's an absolute spark plug of energy when he's out there and a great scorer to boot. Um, it's for these reasons that I expect the Heat to win this in either five or six. Uh, five with no Embiid, six if he comes back and plays through his raft of injuries at this point, which, what else is new? Joel Embiid is injured as hell in uh, the late season, postseason. It will be very telling, however... Uh, to see just how the Heat fare against a bona fide playoff squad for a full series, though. This is the first real test of their mettle this postseason, and only slight offense to the Hawks here. Y'all were a fucking 10 seed, though. It's not like, let's not act like uh, like that was a team that was ever going to have a chance to do anything in this postseason. Um, little update in the series, though. Uh, game one ended with the Heat winning comfortably 106-92, to after I was done writing this whole section, so hey, I pat myself on the back. Good for me, I guess. Uh, missed pretty much every game this weekend because, like I was just talking about, I just moved, and part of that is I'm still trying to get cable in my room because my parents just moved back in their house as well. Isn't that just fun? So I can't, I can't watch sports right now because my, you know, it, it's not my house. I don't, I don't have control of the TVs and, and what's on the cable, so I can't, I can't turn on sports as so much anymore. But, um, still trying to get cable in my room. It's good to know I wasn't missing much in that matchup anyways, though. So, without further ado, been rambling on for a couple seconds now and silently, awkwardly pausing here. Uh, let's move on to the two versus the three seed, Celtics versus Bucks. Bucks are up 1-0 right now. Game two should be happening right now as I'm recording, actually. Well, it's actually quite deep into game two. I'll have to pull that up here. While I'm I'm going down the uh, the the game plan here of the series, probably not what it should be called, but whatever I'm sticking with it. The game plan, another game one that I missed because of the uh, the cable situation, but uh, this time I missed a classic gem of a playoff performance from Giannis, and it really had nothing to do with his offense. He actually struggled from the field, but dominated in so many other areas areas that didn't even matter at the end of the day. He went 9-25 from the floor. So, like I said, um, 20, fucking, not 20, 36% from the field. Uh, not great. Also, quick uh, quick update on that uh, that uh, that game three. Not going well for the Bucs. 70-46 uh, in favor of the Celtics. Looks like Ime Udoka got the boys playing up to standards in that second game. But... Uh, Outside of that, 24 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists, 12 assists, two blocks for Giannis in Game 1. Brooke Lopez and uh, Giannis actually combined for five blocks, made the paint pretty near intent, impenetrable uh, in what was a dominant defensive performance on the road in Game 1. Stole a, stole a road game there, so this the way the, the Game 2 is going, maybe not the worst thing in the world, Um Pretty awesome way to start out the series, though, without Chris Middleton uh, stealing a game on the road. Strategically critical to steal this game uh, because now the Bucks basically just have to win their home games in order to clinch the series, which I say only you are still playing the Celtics at the end of the day. But at home, 
the role players play better. You got the energy of the crowd behind you. I mean, sure, it may, might make you a little bit more jittery in some situations, but I think players like Giannis absolutely thrive with the crowd behind him like that. And I think, you know, you never know. It always seems like one obscure role player, like maybe a, an asshole like Grayson Allen just goes out there and just has a fucking game at home every so often here. So... <laughs> Fucking kicking shit all around this. Uh, got a new recording setup here. I'm in a fucking closet now. It's a bit of a uh, better uh, better audio setup outside of the kicking over the. I'm not even sure what that is. Like a laundry rack or something, uh, making noise and stuff like that. But hey, sonically, best sort of setup I had so far. I mean, I went from my bedroom to my living room to a closet. Next, maybe we'll get into a studio. Who even fucking knows? But anyways, where, where was I even at in, that, in this before I just distracted the shit out of myself? Um, that being said, I expect a long, protracted series. Both of these teams are pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> these teams are pretty good, man. They're, I mean, they're, they're all right, you know? I mean, they got in the second round of the playoffs, so I guess they're, they're, they're average at best, right? Okay. But uh, that being said... Um, I think they're both good enough to win a title this year, not just good, uh, and that's bound to show in this series. Uh, like I said, in spite of the dominance we saw from the Bucks in Game 1, Ime Odoka is a damn good coach, and I anticipate that he have a really good response for uh, what happened in Game 1. Um, that's obviously what happened in Game 2. Uh, look for this to go seven games. I've got the Bucks probably winning it, but... It's more because I love Giannis than anything else. I mean, it's kind of, kind of, kind of biased pick there. I just think it's it's one of those series I'm going to enjoy watching. Uh, these are two pretty evenly matched teams, and I hope that theory holds more true than it did in the Celtics Nets series. Uh, anyways, that's you know second round sort of things. There's only two series now in each each conference, so we're moving right down the list to the Western Conference. Got the 1-4 matchup, because, uh, you know, like I said, chalk in the first round. Got the Suns versus Mavs. Suns have a 1-0 lead in that series. Uh, based on my initial analysis of Mavs ver- of the Mavs-Jazz series, uh, anyone who's been following along with the show, with the product, first off, thank you. There's not really many of you, but I thank you very much if you are. Uh, they, you probably know my feelings on this series, though, if you've, you've listened closely here in the past couple episodes. I think the Mavs probably steal a game in this series just based on the strength of, of Luka and Jalen Brunson. But I find it hard to see this series going longer than five or six in favor of the Suns. Maybe six if Luka just goes completely batshit insane, ends up stealing two games on him. But, I mean... Credit to the Mavs for getting to this point and battling through the Jazz in the opening round, but the Suns are just a different, different animal. CP3 and Devin Booker are just a better duo, in my opinion, than Luka and Jalen are. Then, you have to add on top of that DeAndre DeAndre Ayton, who I frankly don't think the Mavs have a single person that can guard him. Not, Not one. He is a freak inside. I mean, just, he's somehow tall and skinny, and strong at the same time. I mean, it's a weird, weird combo. But, I mean, he is one of the most effective big men in the league. Uh, to me, barring injury, Suns are just about head and shoulders better than and hungrier than the Mavs are. 
Expect the Suns to take care of business and punch their ticket to the Western Conference Finals for the second straight season at that. Uh, game one on Monday echoed the sentiment I just laid out there. Um, Luka went completely out of his mind, scoring 45 on 15 of 30 field goals. But Aiton was the difference maker, shooting 12 of 20 from the field, 25 points in a 121-114 to victory for the Suns. Uh, Suns are up 1-0. I, th- I don't know if they have a game tonight or tomorrow. I don't know. I probably should have looked that up. It Maybe it's tonight as this comes out. I don't know. Anyways, moving down the list to the last series we have got on the docket here. That's the 2-3 matchup. Grizzlies versus Warriors. Warriors currently up 1-0. Game 2 happening later this night as I'm recording. You guys already know how it's turned out. Uh, great game. Loved it. Awesome time. Definitely watched it and, you know, didn't uh, sit in my room and just edit instead. Um, this matchup looks to be a little more interesting than its counterpart on the western side of the bracket, I would imagine. Uh, it's a clash of previous NBA generation's great icons. Um and the new confident up-and-comers who are looking to make a name for themselves this postseason, uh, if nothing else, this series promises to have lots, and I mean lots, of offense as we get to the vaunted, as we get the vaunted Warriors, the vaunted Warriors trotting out the Splash Bros plus Draymond and breakout performer of the postseason, Jordan Poole, versus the brilliant, explosive athleticism and greedy toughness that Grizzlies bring to the table with Jamarant, Desmond Bain, former New Zealand gang member, Stephen Adams, and the best young shot blocker in the game, Jaron Jackson. Uh, yeah, that, that all started with a, a Freudian slip, and I just kind of rolled with it, but I do have to double back and just make sure everyone caught that, what I just said. Uh, former New Zealand gang member Steven Adams. That's a guy that you don't want to fuck with both on and off the court right there. Uh, love Steven Adams so much. A guy really just after my own heart. Real just blue collar guy that will not afraid I feel like to beat the absolute living shit out of you. But I just got gotta stress that's one of the one of the wildest backstories uh, in the NBA. Love the guy. Anyways, game one ended on a, a clutch go ahead three from uh, Clay Thompson and a uh, miss on the ensuing possession from John Morant to give the Warriors a 117-116 to lead, well, win, and a 1-0 lead in the series. Uh, Expect more games along the lines of these in the series going going forward. I think the Warriors are a clearly better and certainly more experienced team, but Memphis is afraid of no one, the Warriors included for that matter. I uh, see the Warriors experience winning this series, but I don't envision that being I don't envision this being a short series at all. This will likely be six or seven games. Uh, it's going to be a battle. It's going to essentially come down to having been there before, I think. And the fact of the matter is the Warriors have been there before uh, and experienced all the pressures of playing in championships. They know the heartbreak that comes with losing in the playoffs. Uh, intimately in in many different facets. Uh, ultimately, I believe that will be the difference in this series, and the Warriors going to take this in either six or seven, in my opinion. Uh, another solid season from uh, from the Grizzlies. Just something to build on top of. I think John Moran here for a good time, not a long time. Hopefully, that good time includes a championship for the city of Memphis because it is just it's hard to describe Memphis. I would describe it as like 
Baltimore of the South. Like I went, <laughs> I went there for uh, one of my best friend's weddings uh, last year, actually around this time, and um, went and went and experienced the city for the first time, really. Uh, just like walking around the streets and it really did feel like I was back home in Baltimore, um, a, a city that I really do have kind of like a weird sort of affinity for. It just kind of feels like, like weirdly like, like home in a certain sense, even though like I don't go there very often, but I do wish to see them be successful because it's just a hard nosed, gritty city that just is not afraid to get in your face and the team embodies that. This just is not their year for them, I don't think. And with that, let's move on to the NFL Draft Overview, because there was a lot that happened. Alrighty, moving out of the NBA and into the NFL Draft Overview, like I was just saying, uh, we'll start with a treetops perspective and then go from there, because holy hell, all hell, all hell broke loose on night one of the draft. I mean you know, so to speak. At the end of the day, it is the draft. So there's only so much hell that can ultimately break loose. It's just, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a glorified corporate event that the NFL, being the the smart, profit-minded people that they are, have found a way to monetize at the end of the day because they found, you know, people just can't get enough of football. We we in America have a sickness and the only cure is more football. Um the problem is it's really less of a <laughs> less of a cure and more of a just just sating the the desire if you will you know just staving off the uh, the shakes you know getting getting my hit getting getting that that one sweet sweet score uh, in the middle of the off season to tie me over until uh, I guess OTA start or something I'm not really a big OTA watcher but man we're about to enter a real real dark period for football and i'm going to have to start flexing the old creativity here in a bit maybe start talking about fucking baseball or something or the the fucking different puzzles that are in this closet that i'm i'm recording in uh fucking mini mi- mini griddle yeah mini maker griddle that's that's a thing that's in the closet too but for now we have things to talk about it's the draft starting off let's start with a little little highlight here uh, teams are trading left and right, honestly. I probably should have typed more in this section. Uh, 15-page document, though. There's only so much time in the day. Anyways, I digress. A uh, whole lot of teams were trading left and right in the first round. Nine different trades were executed in that first round alone. And it wasn't all draft capital that was being exchanged. Let's just go down the, the, the personnel moves here. Uh, the Eagles traded for A.J. Brown on draft night, signed him to a four-year, $100 million extension, $57 million guaranteed. Titans then used a compensatory pick at 18 to draft Traylon Burks to fill that void that Brown's departure left. I mean, I guess someone that you can reasonably expect a good production out of. I'm not sure he's going to step in and be exactly what Brown was, and I can really only say that uh, the Titans' offense got got worse on draft day. Um, No offense to Traylon Burks. I think he's going to end up being a very good pro. He's a very versatile guy with a whole lot of athleticism, but at the same time, it's not fair to expect him to come in day one and be the shot-for-shot replacement of A.J. Brown right out the gate. I mean, it's just not realistic. Maybe 
maybe he does come in and just light up the world, light the world on fire, have, you know, 14, 1,500 yards in his first season, 11, 12 touchdowns, something like that. But I, I don't know. You can't just expect a guy to do that in his, in his first year in a, in a system. So, I mean, a bit of a head-scratcher from the Titans' perspective. From the Eagles' perspective, what a fucking home run this draft night was. We'll get a little bit more into all the moves they made later, but A.J. Brown alone, you put him opposite of Devontae Smith. You got Dallas Goddard to work the short middle there. You have got the makings of a very good receiving core for the Eagles, and now I think you've given Jalen Hurts basically all he needs to either put up or shut up in this one. I think he's a very solid quarterback. I'll be interested to see if he ends up, you know, proving some doubters wrong, me included. I'll put hand up, man. I have seen his accuracy since he was at Alabama going to Oklahoma. I think he's he doesn't make a goddamn mistake, and he's very good at running, which makes him very, very dangerous in his own right just by being so non-mistake prone, almost robotic in the most complimentary way possible, I say that. Um, but he's not been able to push teams down the field with his arm so much. If he can prove that he can do that, because I think he really has improved as a QB in the NFL, um, if he can prove that he can do that, I mean, hey, it, the Eagles are in business. They could go to the Super Bowl as soon as this year. But again, more on that later. I I will gush about the Eagles more later, Let me let me tell you. But... That's not the only thing that happened in the first round here. The Cards actually traded a first and a third to reunite Hollywood Brown with his college QB, Kyler Murray. And that was a move that, you know, at first I didn't get because I forgot that Hollywood Brown was on the same team that Kyler Murray was on. Uh, now that I know that, though, I think this is a fucking home run of a move. I think that if, if there's anything we've learned over the past I don't know, like two seasons or so specifically with uh, Jalen Waddle going to Miami with Tua and specifically Jamar Chase going to Cincinnati with Burrow is that if you can reunite these elite QBs that end up being, well, in Tua's case, just being in the NFL, if you can reunite a college QB with their college wide receiver that was a stud, I think you do that 10 times out of 10. I think the Patriots kind of fucked up by not getting John Mechie in this draft. But, yeah, it it is what it is on that front. They did, however, trade up to draft a lineman from UT Chattanooga that nobody, nobody in the entire world had heard of, uh, which is the most Bill Belichick scenario possible. Drafted Cole Strange, if you were wondering. Um, I I believe he's number 69. So, So if that's true, his jersey is... Strange 69, which fucking nice. That's probably the nicest, coolest, most dope name in the NFL. And that's pretty much, I mean, what what more can I say on that one? The list just keeps going on and on with the amount of moves that happen in night one. Uh, just an awesome way to kick off the draft. It's it's a thing that really just kept up straight through the weekend. My guy Quasi Adolfo Mensa was wheeling and dealing in his first draft as a GM. Uh, he really seems to get the value side of the draft already at this point. More on him in a bit. Uh, for now, let's talk about a few picks in the draft that I particularly liked more than others because there's quite a few this year. Picks I love, starting with Aiden Hutchinson at number two to Detroit, uh, mostly for sentimental reasons, not necessarily for the football reasons, but hey, don't get me wrong, football-wise, 
I still think this is about the most surefire pick in the entire draft this year as far as a plug-and-play day one starter. Hutchinson is long, he's athletic, and he's polished as a pass rusher as well in a way that there's no question in my mind that he'll step in and make an immediate difference from the get-go this season. I think he's going to be a real force in pass rush twice a year. It's not going to be fun playing against him as a Vikings fan, but hey, I think I'm a firm believer that if the entire division gets better, I think we all end up having to get better by osmosis. So I'm I'm all about more competition. Um, that, that being said, the the Bears can go fuck themselves. I mean, don't don't get it twisted. I just think the Lions being being good helps everyone here at the end of the day. Um, the impact though off the field is what I'm interested in though. A guy who went to Michigan. Uh, whose parents live in the greater Detroit area, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a guy who was a Heisman finalist last year as a defensive end. I think he had 14 and a half, 15 and a half sacks. Which, by the way, the fact that Will Anderson wasn't a Heisman finalist, but Aiden Hutchinson was, still bullshit in my opinion. But I digress on that front. I think Will Anderson's going to have a real chance to win it next year on that, that front. But uh, now... I mean, it's hard to under underestimate or just understate how monumental it is for fans to have have uh, a guy that's a hometown guy in their region. Um, now the fans, I mean, they got a real chance of being having a very good player who's from that hometown, I guess, region. I mean, he's from the era, from Michigan at the very least, a prodigal son returning home, if you will. Really not, really stumbled all over my words in this section. Um, I think that can only be good for the culture, not only just for the locker room. Where, frankly, I don't, I don't think the fact that he went to Michigan and is a Michigan guy necessarily matters in the locker room. I legitimately don't think uh, the guys in there can give can give two shits as long as he can play well. I don't think they give a fuck what he does outside of that. I think more acutely it's going to be felt in the culture in the fan base specifically uh they got a guy in their team who they watched grow up in college now they have a vested interest in him in the pros uh his presence is going to help the lions in so many ways off the field in the community that may prove to be even more valuable than what he brings on the field you think about a guy like i mean i hate to put him in the same sentence as as like drew Brees because that's a as far as philanthropy is concerned i think he basically, I I feel like if you talk to people in New Orleans, he helped rebuild the city after Katrina. So it's, it, it would be hard to live up to that legacy if you're Aiden Hutchinson. Um, hell, I mean, with a city like Detroit, though, he's got an opportunity to maybe make a run at it, though, if you if you really go with it. And I mean, he's... He's in the area. I would assume he's got a, a you know a good pulse on what the issues are already in that part of the country. I think you know off the field he might be able to make even more more of a difference than he would on the field at any point. Um, I think it could. This is going to be a very good. I hope that he ends up being a hit. Um, I, I sound like a fucking turncoat saying that as a Vikings fan, but it's the fucking Lions. If you're cheering against the Lions. I mean, you're a sadist. You're just an unhappy person that just likes to see people in pain. I don't like to see people in pain. I like to see people happy. So as long as they lose two games a year to the Vikings, go ahead, knock yourselves out, man. You know, just have a great, have a great season. Have great players. 
I think if Aiden Hutchinson can be a great player, can stay in Detroit for a long time, really bigger than football looking from a wide perspective here, I think it can be an awesome thing for that whole Detroit area. But moving down the line to a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a tone shift to just, I mean, what can only be described as just straight up SEC, specifically Mississippi State bias here, uh, Charles Cross going to the Seahawks absolute dynamite pickup in the first round. I think it's pretty much precisely what I wanted them to do. Well, actually, I believe I said linebacker last week on the uh, the team needs pod. I think they also went and got him, got one of those two in the second round, one or two of those, I believe, in the second round. Um, many Seattle fans were frustrated the Seahawks didn't take a QB here, but like I said last week, y'all really don't want to throw a young QB into the blast furnace, do you? I mean, that's... Not, especially not one you would have had to reach for the from the for yeah especially not one that you would have basically had to reach for value wise I'm definitely biased with this pick I mean Hale State but Cross is an athletic specimen uh, running a sub five second forty time six five uh, three hundred pounds I mean a, a rare well. Nowadays, they're becoming less and less rare, but definitely a rare sort of athlete on that O-line. I mean, he just needs some time to learn the tackle position at the NFL level, to nurture his development properly. I mean, they may have an anchor on the offensive line for the next decade plus. Once Cross is a little bit more polished, there's a stronger QB class, then the Seahawks can draft a QB and plug him in behind a stronger uh, offensive line there. But right now... I mean, guys, you're going to be fucking terrible next year. And it's probably for the best because next year's QB classes, uh, Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, those are probably going to be the top two picks in the next year's draft. So I think the, if the Seahawks can be up there next year, that might be the best thing in the world. And what's one position that doesn't impact winning unless you got everything else around it? The line. I mean, uh, call, call a spade a spade. I love the line. But at the end of the day... It's something that you build first because it's the foundation of the team. When you are good, when you have a whole bunch of skill talent, it ends up being the the deciding factor in what wins you a game. But if it, if you just have an offensive line with no skill positions and no real good defense, you just have an offensive line with a terrible team. So, which is still going to win you just about four games probably. Maybe, maybe five or something like that. You might be able to steal one here and there just because you, you jump out to a lead and that offensive line can get you some good running yards. But I think right now is the time to draft an offensive line, uh, build up the protect, the protection base for whoever you end up drafting next year at quarterback. And uh, yeah, brace for pain this year, Seahawks fans, because this is going to suck. But I think you got a really good tackle going forward here if you can develop him properly in Charles Cross, and going from a big athletic man on one side of the line to a ginormous athletic man on the other side of the line, Jordan Davis to the Eagles, and the petty aspects, oh, the petty aspects of this one are just just as entertaining to me, if not even more entertaining than the football fit for Davis here, but I mean, gotta start with the petty stuff, the Ravens, the Ravens were sitting at 14, and Davis fits, I mean, let me tell you, being someone who lived in the Baltimore area for seven, eight years or so. Um, 
I, I got a pretty good idea. I mean, going to a whole bunch of games too. I mean, I had a, well, I mean, one of my coast, my closest friends from uh, middle and high school, uh, had a hookup on uh, Ravens game tickets. So we would go to a whole lot of Ravens games. Got a pretty good affinity for that team. Uh, probably pretty good pulse on what they are as a culture. Jordan Davis fits the mold of basically everything they're about as an organization. He's just a raw athlete on the defensive side that the Ravens have basically routinely taken the, the likes of and developed into absolute monsters time and time again. And the guy that he really most reminded me of coming out was former Raven, one of the greatest defensive tackles of all time, really underrated. Just go back and look at what he did, Haloti Nada. And the thing is, Haloti was a big guy who was, you know, like 340, 330 pounds, but he was also 6'4". He was 6'4". Jordan Davis, on the other hand, is 6'6", 340. A guy that, if they just bring him in, get him into that defensive culture, I think he would have immediately been an absolute star for that Ravens team. I mean, Baltimore would have loved him. Baltimore loves guys like Jordan Davis, let me tell you what. Baltimore is a, like I said, I mean, Memphis is the Baltimore of the South. That means, you know, Baltimore is obviously the Baltimore of the North here. Baltimore is a tough nose, hard nosed city, man. It, it's a it's a fun place to go and just be be rowdy in a crowd. Honestly, uh, when when the Ravens are absolutely popping, oh man, M and T Bank Stadium gets loud. It gets rowdy. It gets hostile. Uh, just one of the one of the great northeastern venues in all of professional sports, in my opinion. If you can get some tickets down in. Really just like, I don't know, you don't even necessarily need to go to like the lower bowl. Just go to like, you know, the, you know, something right above the lower bowl, just where you're in the crowd, basically. Um, not necessarily in the nosebleeds, you're like in the noise in MNC Bank Stadium. Oh man, that place gets rocking uh, in a way that I, I honestly miss. I need to go back to MNC Bank Stadium at some point, but enough of me waxing philosophically. But... Knowing this, at the last second, Howie Roseman struck again, trading up with the Browns at 13 to take Davis and completely cuck the Ravens. I actually, I, I like I said, I have, a, I have an affinity for the Ravens. I went to a lot of their games when I lived in Baltimore. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that I laughed my ass off when I saw what the Eagles did to the Ravens in this spot. The Ravens... Jordan Davis was going to them in every single mock draft. I mean, a lot like Derek Stingley did, which, hey, that didn't quite end up working out the way we hoped it did, did it? Huh. Number three overall, huh? Yeah, yeah. Whole lot of smokescreen there going in. But, um, I don't know, man. This was still, like, one of the one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, the Eagles knew exactly what was going to happen they, they said, nope, we want this guy more. Uh, ended up working out for the Ravens, though, as they ended up getting Kyle Hamilton, who we'll talk about in the second year, at a favorable spot. But, boy, was the drama surrounding that sequence fun to watch. Uh, that's what makes Draft Night so great is all that shit, because it's a big chess game. It's a big, like, GMs trying to outsmart each other, trying to get ahead of each other to take players, uh, trying to gauge relative value, like what 
what one GM thinks of a player versus what you think of a player. If you really like a player, but another GM also really likes a player, and they're ahead of you in the draft, I mean, if you want to get that player, you're going to have to bump yourself ahead of that team that's ahead of you there. So it's... I don't know. It's it's that mental aspect. I'm I'm a nerd about that, but I, it's it's very it's exciting for me to watch. And this was a dream scenario draft in that that sort of regard. From a football perspective, though, I think uh, I really might love the pick even more. Though, um, not only do you bring in a player that can shore up the defense on the front seven, but you you have him next to one of the best ever to do it, Fletcher Cox. I mean, again, Hale State. He he's got some things because. Because of the way they treated Sylvester Kroon on the way out the door. But, still love you, buddy. Hale State. Um, he can help Davis grow into an absolute force in this league. Just having Davis on his own would have been a great uh, get for any team in the middle. Uh, and any team in the middle of the first, that is. But having Fletcher Cox there to mentor him is almost a guarantee in my mind that he'll uh, he'll be put in the best possible situation to succeed in the NFL. And I really can't wait to see what they do with those two behemoths next to each other. They may have one of the best running defenses in the entire league. And the Eagles overall, um, hell, while we're in the area, might as well move right on to the next pick that I really love. N'Kobe Dean also to the Eagles. They made a whole lot of great draft picks in this draft. Dean was a guy that I tried to put out the good vibes. I mean, you know, just fucking spun the crystals around. You fucking stuck them in my pants or whatever the hell you do with those things. Uh, put the good vibes out in the universe and tried to manifest that the Vikings would take him. Um, unfortunately, that shit didn't fucking work. So, you know, ended up with the Eagles instead. It's fine. I'm not salty about it at all. It's cool. Anyways, there's rumbling about Dean's injury situation. Apparently, there's rumors that he won't even play next year. But, hey, injuries aside, he's an incredible football player. He was undisputedly the uh, the best player on the UGA defense last season. And that, that defense ended up having five first-round picks. Uh, three other players drafted, including Dean and... If not for the injury concerns, he likely would have been a mid-first-round pick as well, which would have made literally more than half of the starters on that defense first-round picks. And let me tell you, if you watched any snaps of the uh, Georgia defense last year, it looked like it. (laughs) it. It certainly looked like they had eight draftable players in that team at the very least. It was fucking, it was wild watching that team. He's a good runner. But what makes Dean dangerous is his brain, in my opinion. Dominique, Dominique Foxworth put it best. Dominique Foxworth, Jesus Christ, I cannot pronounce shit today. Uh, I think he put it best, in my opinion, when he said his feet move as fast as his brain does. And that's an absolute asset, asset super rare. I think you see a lot of guys with great foot speed without a whole lot of uh, football IQ to go along with that. So they're basically just run like a chicken with their head cut off. Very susceptible to play action, very, very um, susceptible to eye candy and stuff like that. Uh, Just undisciplined sort of players, but spark plugs nonetheless. If Dean is able to overcome the injury issues he's been dealing with, Eagles got a star linebacker for an absolute steal in the third round. And if you get Dean at the peak Dean in, you know, the third round contract at that, I... That's a situation where it's like same sort of thing that that the Colts had with Darius Leonard. You got a all pro on a rookie deal. 
the Eagles, I cannot stress enough, have made so many good moves in this draft process. I cannot wait to watch Nakobe Dean absolutely fly around, get healthy soon, because you are one of my favorite players in the entire world to watch. But I'm just glad you didn't go to the Bears at the end of the day. But moving right down the list to a guy I mentioned earlier, Kyle Hamilton to the Ravens. I actually really, really love this pick. Uh, before he put out some slow 40 times, Hamilton's tape told the story of a possible top five pick. I think Kuypers, in his initial mock draft, directly following the um, college football season, I believe he had Kyle Hamilton going five to the Jets or something like that, something along those lines. Um, obviously, he ran the four eight at the Combine or something like that. Ran a four seven at the Pro Day, which, you know... That's that's the risk you run with running that extra 40 time at the pro day. Obviously, you get a do-over so you can show that you're not an actual like 4-8 runner, but also you can run a 4-7 and basically solidify in everyone's minds that you just got bad foot speed. Um, he's a guy that can play that hybrid safety role, though, that is uh, becoming more and more crucial to attack offenses. Uh, Hamilton's a pick with the potential to cover up a lot of holes in a lot of different areas for the Ravens' defense, which is good because, you know, they, they got a lot of holes there. I know they got people coming back from injury in the secondary. I know they were really hammered with injuries last year. Um, I think all the smart people that I follow, everyone I listen to, like the, the Mina Kimeses of the world, um, Dominique Foxworth, uh, all those people, not necessarily like the, the, the Pat McAfee's, if you will. I mean... No, no shade to Pat McAfee. I think it's probably my, my favorite uh, sports show out there. But I don't go to him for accurate information and intellectual analysis. I go there for entertainment at the end of the day. Uh, but the smart people, the, the people like Mina Kimes, the, the, um, the fucking Dominic Foxworth. I don't know why those are the only two names that I can remember off the top of my head. But I digress on that front. They all watched the tape, saw Kyle Hamilton... He plays faster than what he ran on in the uh, the forty time, which it, it makes sense. Football speed is just different than track speed. And I've seen it on a, on a first hand basis doing both, doing football and track. There are people on the track that are absolutely blazing fast, but they put on the pads and they can't really move fast at all. It's, it's hard to hard to move. They're they're pretty clunky at the same time. So at the same time, though, there's people that can maybe run fast on the football field. It feels natural to him to have the, the pads on to to move athletically like that. But on the other side, they never had like formal training as to um, how to run. So they, they may be fast in a football sense, but when it comes to track speed, they run a bit of a slower 40 time. I think that's kind of what ended up happening with Kyle Hamilton Either way, I think the Ravens ended up getting a steal in the middle of the first round. Just a very Ravens draft pick. They're making lemons out of lemonade after, like I said, I cannot stress enough. They got cucked by the Eagles in at number 13 there. Just a hilarious sequence. But moving right down the list, Kenny Pickett to the Steelers. I do love the fit here, but more than anything, I love this pick because it allows me to take a victory lap for calling this move way back during the college football season and sticking to it through the draft needs special just last week. Sometimes you see a situation playing out and it just makes too much sense not to put out in the airwaves. 
The Steelers drafted a QB who went to school in Pittsburgh, played at Heinz Field, and did it so well that he finished the season as a Heisman finalist. Certainly falls under that description of just makes too much sense not to uh, put out there on the airwaves. Uh, there may be some growing pains for Pickett early as he as he acclimates to the NFL, but with Tomlin at the helm and the coaching staff surrounding him, I have all the confidence in the world that this is uh, this pick is going to pay off in a big way eventually. I mean, maybe maybe the first year or two, maybe it's not the best thing in the world, but I I think you're going to see him constantly improve. I think being in Pittsburgh, already having that base there is going to be huge, already being integrated into the city. I I think this this is going to be an absolute slam dunk pick. Um, again, fucking kudos to me for pointing this shit out in like fucking, what was it, October? Like shit, I, I feel good about this one. This was a, this was a real adrenaline dump when this happened during the first round. Might've gotten, might've gotten a full body boner. Might've went back to, uh, might've went back to just, just beat, beat my salami a little bit. Just thinking about how right I was at one point. Anyways, making this weird Love to see Kenny Pickett with the Steelers. Glad he's in the AFC and not the NFC. So I can, you know, I can root for him. Did I say I had an affinity for the Ravens earlier? Yeah. Am I a fan? No, I am not. So I can root for everybody in that division at this point. Outside of the Browns because you all know why. Anyways, moving down the list. Again, we got the Ravens here. Big big AFC North, NFC North podcast here. Tyler Linderbaum to the Ravens. Um, Lamar Jackson seemed to hate it. More centered around a Hollywood Brown trade, I would imagine. But uh, he did tweet what the fuck like directly after Linderbaum was picked. But I think Linderbaum is a piece that could completely change the dynamic of the Ravens run game and the pass protection. Linderbaum was the consensus best center in the draft, according to both career analysts and players that played the position. Uh, if the jocks and the nerds both love a guy and they agree on a guy, that's probably a pretty good indication that he's going to end up being a stud. You should pick that guy at whatever position you have to play him at. The But the Ravens certainly had an opening at center. I think they've, they've had one there for a while at this point. But... Uh, for the Ravens, this was a match made in heaven with the way they play offense. Um, the de- l- let me move back though. I'm getting getting ahead of myself. The detractor for many teams, though, the reason he got to so late in the draft to where they ended up picking him in the first round um, was that Linderbaum is exclusively a center. His arms are just too short uh, to stick him elsewhere. Uh, he's not quite. He's not like the 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 six five towering type guy that Quentin Nelson was, which you know the reason that he ended up being guard, um, not based on his athleticism or anything like that, because he is an an excellent athlete at that guard position. It's the same sort of thing with Linderbaum when he has uh, shorter arms, so it's better to put him in a phone booth than on the outside against the the longer athletic pass rushers, uh, exposing him like that. Same sort of thing with with uh, Linderbaum, but. Um, any, so any team in the middle of the first that was not in the market for a, a new center pretty much passed on him. Uh, for the Ravens, though, it was a match made in heaven. Uh, with the way they play offense, with the amount they run the ball, the offense needed a big old brain in the center of that line to read the defensive front and get guys in the right spot. Uh, having a guy like Linderbaum at center 
could allow the Ravens to make more efficient checks in the run game with the way he's able to read defenses from up close. Um, maybe even more importantly, when the Ravens pass, Linderbaum will act as an extra buffer for identifying blitzes and getting getting the protections uh, where they need to be. Um, overall, not a sexy pick, but it's one with... Um, it's one that puts one more excellent football mind and a respectable athlete at that. I mean, he had a highlight of him. I think it was ex- escorting, who's it, Goodson? One of the running backs at, at Iowa, basically like running stride for stride with him downfield for like a 50-yard a fifty uh, yard touchdown run. No one got even close to him because they saw Linderbaum was in the area escorting him down the field. But uh, overall, not a sexy pick. But one more excellent football mind uh, in a key strategic pit position for the Ravens on offense. Uh, even if they did it, didn't end up getting a weapon like Jackson wanted and really ended up trading a weapon in uh, Marquise Brown, I believe the addition of Linderbaum will pay big dividends for this offense for years to come. Um, hopefully, hopefully it just doesn't result in Lamar Jackson making a rash decision and deciding he doesn't want to play there anymore. Who's to say? Who's to say? Moving down the list, once again, we have got Chris Olave to the Saints uh, after an offseason dedicated to an arms race on the defensive side. Adding adding Olave is exactly the type of move the Saints need to make in order to give the offense its best shot at respectability, in my opinion. Uh, Don't get me wrong, there are some nice pieces on that offense between Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. But they needed a solid all-around receiver with some speed to plug in at number two, and that's precisely what they got with Olave here. Now, instead of relying on Deontay Harris and Marquez, uh, Marquez, I don't know, Marquez, Marquez, it's always hard to fucking, it's always hard to gauge with that QU. Is it Marquez or Marquez? Who's to say Marquez Callaway? I'll just go with that one. Both of those guys, Deontay Harris and Marquez Callaway, both have uh, valuable skill sets, but are very specialized in what they do. The Saints can lean on Alave a lot more in that that sense, uh, giving them a more well-rounded passing attack. I mean, you think about it with Harris, uh, the receiving core lacks toughness, lack tuck, lacks toughness outside of Thomas. Uh, with Callaway, got all the toughness in the world, uh, but you got a pair of big physical receivers and uh, no real threat going deep because. No, no corner is afraid of Michael Thomas or Marquez Callaway's speed. I'll tell you that much. So, I mean, again, I think Olave really only helps this team. With Olave in that role, teams will have a tougher time defending the the, the Saints' offense because he can both run precise routes and work the the short intermediate range, and take the top off the defense with his sub four four speed. Uh, I would by no means assume that the Saints will be right back at the top of the offensive rankings like they were under uh, Peyton and Drew Brees. I think that ship has pretty much all but sailed at this point, this point. But I certainly think this move will help them in the top half of the league. Um, I think that's where they'll end up at the end of the day. And with the defense the Saints put together this offseason, that's really all they need. And really, they just added Honey Badger back in there, uh, Tyron Matthew, to fill in that role in, uh, that uh, Malcolm Jenkins left open at safety, uh, the Saints, bar none, have the best roster on defense in all of football. They're, that defense is going to be must-watch television week in, week out. They may give up, like, less than 15 points a game. Like, it's it's very 
it's possible they're right down like 12, 10 points a game this year, especially having the, the Panthers and Falcons to play against twice a year. Um, mark my words now, the Saints are going to have the best defense in the entire league next year, and I cannot wait to watch it. But that being said, I think Olave is the real difference maker on offense, especially when you got Taysom Hill in there. Going back to his true role as a gadget player, just being, like I, like I said before, uh, a skeleton key to unlock the um, unlock the, the biggest weaknesses on the opposing defense. Um, the Saints are a dangerous, dangerous team next year, and I can't wait to see how they turn out in that division. I think they're going to make the playoffs at the very least. Might end up stealing the division out from under the Bucks this year, but only time will tell. Moving out of the picks I loved, the biggest winner in this draft, I think, was the Philadelphia Eagles, and I've I've gushed about them over and over, eh, so why not gush a little bit more, right? Uh, between trading for A.J. Brown, drafting Jordan Davis, and later selecting the Kobe Dean, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a team that made out any better at the draft than the Eagles did. Uh, Eagles came into the draft with a solid squad that they had a chance to make a playoff push with. Uh, now coming out of it, I think they have the pieces to possibly go on a run ahead of schedule next season and maybe go all the way to the Super Bowl. I think division is certainly in reach. Uh, certainly expect them to defend, to win the division, as I stated in my recklessly early predictions, which I'm, I'm sticking to right now. Um, but I think, I mean, you, you think there's a lot of, a lot of teams like the Saints specifically, I think filled a, a bunch of roles, a bunch of holes rather, on on the roster. But I'm not sure there's a team, there's no team in the uh, the draft that elevated themselves quite as drastically as the Eagles did this year. Now Hurts has basically every opportunity to succeed, like I laid out earlier. Uh, if he can elevate his play and show he's capable of challenging a defense consistently with his arm, the, the Eagles can sign him to an extension. And if he proves he's just not. Not the type of guy, not the type of arm talent that they're looking for. They can cut ties and draft a QB next year when the class is deeper. Any, either way, you slice it, the Eagles are in an excellent position moving into next season. And that's why I think they came out of this the biggest winners. They really elevated the entire profile of their team in a way that I think puts them right at the top of the NFC right now. Can't wait to see how that all unfolds. Biggest loser, on the other hand. Um... Honestly, the draft is such a crapshoot that it's it's hard to even gauge when it's when drafts are really bad. Let me let me give you a, an example. First year under Jim Harbaugh, I distinctly remember Mel Kiper uh, giving the 49ers draft a, a D rating. I want to say maybe like a C plus something around there. Um, all they did in that draft was take Alden Smith, Colin Kaepernick, and Daniel Kilgore, uh, who played for San on the San Francisco line from 2011 to 2016. That's a uh, Six-year starter, if you're doing the math at home, ladies and gentlemen. It's a class that Trent Baalke made basically an entire career out of as a GM. And, oh, by the way, they won 13 games and made the NFC Championship that game. NFC Championship game that season. Jesus Christ. So it's safe to say not a single person can accurately predict how badly or well a draft uh, has gone for a team. Uh... Conversely, like I said, no one can really tell who had a great draft either by that same logic. But positivity is more fun when you're uh, talking about kids who haven't played a single snap set, snap yet in the NFL. 
So, with that said, I think the biggest loser in the draft is the Bears. Not because they drafted badly, but because they just have a loser mentality in general. Definitely not because I hope they stink so the Vikings can make a run at the playoffs this year. But I digress. Along those same lines, fuck the Bears. How did the Vikings do in the draft this year? Um, all in all, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa's first draft is, was a resounding solid, I guess. You know, not, not bad. Uh, first round was a pretty classic Vikings story that, you know, I mean... Rick Spielman just did it year after year. They were they started at twelve. Uh, Derek Stingley obviously didn't even get close to making it to us. Texans took him at three after basically keeping that under wraps the entire time. Um, so they traded back from twelve to thirty-two for a raft of high mid-rounders from the the Lions. Lions ended up drafting Jamison Williams there, who arguably might not even play next season. So I mean. He might end up being good, but also you just drafted a guy at 12th overall that's not going to play. I mean, it's a strat. It's a strat. Um, at 32, they drafted Lewis Seen, who fills a critical role at strong safety that's been a, a problem since Anthony Harris left to join the Eagles in 2020. Um, he should greatly benefit from having Harrison Smith at free safety to both learn from and to do the heavy lifting as far as coverage is, is concerned because, I mean, uh, Seen's likely going to play a, a similar lo- role to what he played at UGA. Just go and still fear in the opposing skill group. He's he's a guy that can just take people's heads off. I mean, obviously, not literally anymore. He can't do that. But he's a guy that can lay the wood on people if you need him to. Uh, real classic strong safety in that manner. And I really couldn't really couldn't think of a a better guy to put him next to than uh, Harrison Smith as far as teaching him the uh, the nuances of the game as far as that's concerned. So excited to see how that turns out. Initial first-round trade was a bit of an indication of uh, of Cam, which I'm going to refer to him as, as Cam from now on. A uh, bit of an indication of Cam's uh, approach to the draft. He started with a... He made a, a total of six trades throughout the course of the draft. Uh, started off with eight picks. Uh, one in the first... One in the second round, one in the third round, one in the fifth round, three in the sixth round, and one in the seventh round. Um, average round of, of draft pick, which is basically, I just, you know, if I added the value of all those picks, like the number value of all those picks together and then divided them by the number of picks. So, you know, if it was a first round pick, I added in a one. If it was a six round pick, I added in a six. So... Yeah, it'd be like one plus, you, you get it, you get it either way. So the average round of draft pick with that equation was a four and a half. He finished the draft with 10 draft picks, two more than he came in with, one first, two seconds, one third, a fourth, which he didn't have coming in, uh, two fifths, two sixths, and a seventh to wrap things up. Uh, that brings the total average round of draft pick to 3.7. Uh, really just a, a, a stellar draft from the value perspective. So he's not only going for more picks than he came in with. Um, he's not only got more picks than he came with, excuse me. He's also improved on the overall value of, of those picks as well, just by doing the wheeling and the dealing. And so from that perspective... It's very, very successful first draft for uh, Cam. Got a lot of shit for moving back to allow, quote-unquote, 
to quote-unquote allow two divisional teams to get wide receivers, but those two teams were going to draft wide receivers anyways. If the Vikings loved a player in either of those spots, they would have stayed and picked a motherfucker there, but they didn't, which tells me that they didn't feel strongly about anyone, any one player in any of those spots, which, I mean... I would have loved to see Nakobe Dean in one of those spots, but I'm also not the GM for for obvious reasons. I'm a little little unqualified. Uh, so from Cam's perspective, I could see how you'd much rather leech draft capital from the Lions and Packers and move to for them to move up than uh, stand pat and take a player that he's not sold on. Um, you can make the criticism that you're helping out teams in the division. I would make the argument that you are stealing draft capital for them and improving your overall position in the draft by letting them have the illusion of taking a flyer on a player that they want. So, you know, the Packers ended up trading up to draft a guy from North Dakota State. He's only played at the FCS level. There's no guarantee that he's going to be coming in and playing absolutely lights out. They just drafted a guy last year in Amari Rogers who didn't play Zip Zilch Nada last year. They drafted him in the second round. So it's not a guarantee that the guy that they drafted is going to end up being a starter. And Jameson Williams, like I just said, probably not even going to play in his first year for the most part. And if he does, by that time, it's not probably going to be too late in the season for him to actually make a lot of a difference. I mean, the Lions... I mean, they made some good additions here. I think they're they're moving in the right direction. But at the end of the day, they still have a roster that abjectly, you know, kind of stinks. So I don't expect them to be doing well when Jamison Williams comes back because at the end of the day, they do have Jared, Jared Goff at QB. Um, overall, the level of performance of the players... Cam drafted is really anyone's guess, but from a, a need and value perspective, I think he did everything he could in this draft. He picked a host of DBs, uh, including a day one starter at strong safety and two corners in the top half of the draft, Andrew Booth in the second round, who he actually traded up for, and uh, a Caleb Evans in the fourth round. Uh, by the way, hope he's right about Booth because he traded back, back up to take him from, I think... Um, in the, the 50s into the 40s, up to 42 to uh, take Andrew Booth. Fair or not, he's going to get a lot of heat for uh, for that one if it doesn't pan out. Uh, just based on the capital that was spent to go get him, uh, ended up spending a third and uh, swapped a six for the for a fourth. So, I mean, honestly, still didn't make out too badly in the end there. But uh, that's one just based on the fact that he traded up for him. You're probably going to want to uh, to hit on that one, if nothing else here. I mean, hell, hit on all of them as far as I'm concerned. But uh, he picked up depth as well on the offensive and defensive line and linebacking core, which were all ancillary areas of need, in my opinion, after the secondary. I mean, just, just places we needed to bolster up a little more. In spite of the bad press he received uh, for making so many trades backwards, I think Cam was able to markedly improve the team uh, from where it was before the draft. Only time will tell at the end of the day, uh, whether it's blind fan optimism on my part or a correct evaluation, but I'm just excited to see how it all unfolds at the end of the season. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to love this team either way, but having 10 draft picks coming in and having them made as strategically as they were, I'm I'm very excited to see just how all of this pans out. Uh, that being said, 
uh, adding in a new segment that I'm going to end every single week with, um, a bit like the, um, what, what was it called back in the day? What's going on in the real world segment that I used to do with, uh, with Zach back in the previous iteration of the podcast. Uh, this time around though, we're going to call this, get a load of this shit. The, uh, the name of the segment is get a load of this shit. And this week, let me tell you, get a load of this shit. A British MP resigns after admitting to watching porn in Parliament. <laughs> hey, American politics are all sorts of fucked up. Uh, particularly right now, not even gonna touch that with a 10-foot fucking pole. But uh, we just don't have the pension for comedic blunders in our, co- in our um, political careers that the British seem to have. I mean, we got we got the garden variety scandals, the infidelity and stuff like that. But the sheer level of hilarity that happens in British Parliament I, I highly recommend everyone just, you know, just just give a little little ear to the ground as far as what uh, what happens in, in British Parliament because, really, British news in general, Brit- Britain's got a fascinating culture to me as far as, like, I feel like they give us a lot of shit for being, like, I guess, us being Americans for being, like, toxic as fuck, but at the same time, they're tabloids. <laughs> Their tabloids and media apparatus in general are some of the most volatile, like, fucking cutthroat, ridiculous tabloids in the world. I mean, you think about it, when Princess Diana got in that uh, questionable car accident with the, the fucking drunk driver or whatever, the tabloids showed up before the ambulance, like, you know, like that movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, they were taking pictures of Princess Diana while she was fucking dying, begging for help, like, taking videos and shit, and they didn't fucking help. The car caught on fire and she died. Like, like that's, the, that's the type of shit we're dealing with here. Kind of got off the rails there on that one. But, that being said, back to this this MP watching porn. That's all to say, they, they just do the drama better in Britain. What can I say, man? I mean, it's just something you gotta look into for yourself. Um... Conservative MP Neil Parrish just couldn't get out of his own way last week. He resigned his seat in Parliament after an abjectly hilarious uh, series of public blunders. Uh, First of all, he got caught, as he puts it, accidentally, accidentally, of course, pulling up porn on his phone in the debate chamber, which, by the way, sure, buddy, Sure, total accident, just happened to pull up some, just some random porn, uh, randomly without meaning to, okay buddy, definitely what happened there, uh, a fellow Tory lawmaker, which is the, uh, right wing conservative party in, in British politics, these are things you probably got to learn on your own here, but, uh, a fellow Tory lawmaker, uh, made the most hilarious clarification possible in this story by saying, he recalled that Parrish was looking into a type of tractor called a Dominator. <laughs> so, you, you get a good picture in your mind of um, the type of website that uh, Parrish pulled up. And by the way, he was admitting all of this like in a BBC interview, like on live TV. Like, this is, this is the shit that you just can't make up, man. Like, he fucking, he went in and did an interview... And even more hilariously, he admits to going back to the porn a second time. Totally on purpose this time around. He was truthful in this one. 
I mean, he fucking, he just told everyone. He said he got in line for, like, voting and whatever. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bored. Let me get a boner real quick. Oh, ho, ho, good ass there. Let me look up the Dominator one last time. F- fucking, the, the fact of the matter is, though, he initially only got in trouble for looking at the porn once. The one time. <laughs> like, that's why he was on the news to uh, to clean up that one time and say, hey, it was a mistake. I was just looking up that, that new tractor called the Dominator, and I went to, you know, dominator.com, and it was not what I was expecting to see there. It was just a lot of guys tying up women and, and dominating them. And, you know, I, I got a bonbon, and then you know, I thought it was pretty cool, but it was a mistake at the end of the day. No, no, no. He went in on live television, not just on live television, on BBC, the biggest fucking channel in Britain, and then just proceeded to piss all over himself and just say, just basically admit that he went back and looked at porn for pleasure in the debate room, which no matter what context it's in, if you're just going in perusing the hub in the middle of the debate room or whatever fucking dominator.com, whatever it was, um, not a good decision, not a good decision. And listen, honestly, I can't blame him for getting bored. I think we've all, we've all, we all can relate to being in a big meeting where, you know, maybe we'd rather be at home cranking our kielbasa, but at the same time, there's one thing we can learn from all this in the story and that it's, there's a time and a place for everything. So I'll, I'll end this podcast with a quick PSA for all of you out there in a professional setting. Don't watch porn in a debate chamber with a bunch of people around you. They can see you, and everyone is uncomfortable. And on that note, that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe, leave a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't, just keep her moving, my guy and or girl, but like, you know... Tell people it was good anyways. It'd be, be nice to get the views and or listens in here. Not not really views. If you can find out a way to view this as well, good on you. Uh, episodes are released every Wednesday once a, <coughs> once a week through the off season. Had a bit of a had a bit of a cock in my throat there. Uh, we'll be back to twice a week uploads when football is back in full in full swing this fall. Uh, follow me on all my socials at Caleb Verzak. Link will be in the description so you don't have to spell out my fucked up. Eastern Bloc name. Uh, let's go Czech Republic. Woohoo! Uh, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a political sticky wiki, but hey, whatever. Just jumped right into that, anyways. Um, if you want to contact the show, shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Just put business or show in all caps to start the subject line so you can be categorized accordingly. And thank you so much for tuning in to Unqualified Analysis. And as always, We've got no clue what we're talking about. Have a good one, ladies and gentlemen. Alrighty, hello. (coughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's start that shit over.